you know, if you've ever lost anybody who's close to you, 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 there's an emotion that comes into play there that you don't experience very often. And, and I guess I would classify it as a, a sober sadness. And of course, uh, we just experienced this recently with the death of Nancy's mother. And that emotion came back. And I remember that at the uh, the loss of um, of my father at Newt Newell and, and some others, just that sober sadness that you sort of forget about until you go through that again. And, and yet, whenever we read the account of Jesus' death and we think about that perfect man, that wonderful gift, that God-man, Jesus Christ, who of all the people on planet Earth was truly an innocent man, him dying that horrible death, uh, there's something akin to that sober sadness, I think, that occurs to us. And because of that, maybe we want to avoid this topic a little bit. But I would submit to you uh, that these verses today are absolutely essential for you to be a Christian, to understand them, to embrace them, and to teach them uh, to others. Um, As the Lord's Prayer uh, tells us that he was crucified, dead, and buried. And we affirm that truth most Sundays here at Christ Reformed Church, as do other Christian churches The Apostle Paul affirmed that principle as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's amazing. The gospel message brings eternal life, and yet it is so very, very simple. Simple enough for a child to understand, and yet uh, complex enough to to baffle philosophers. This morning, we're going to go to the cross. We're going to see the death and burial of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see uh, the, uh, uh, the, the account of eyewitness testimonies of that event. And my prayer is this, is that it will cause us, as we've looked through the whole gospel of Mark, just to, for you to fall in love with Jesus all over again. And just to realize what an amazing God he is. And to remember that during your times of trial and temptation and difficulties. That our God reigns. And our God loves us enough to send his very son to the cross to die for our sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you in faith and uh, we thank you, God, for your inerrant, infallible, inspired word. Father, if you took everything from us and left us without any material comfort, without food, without cover and everything, Lord, truly, we would have the potential to be joyful as long as we have your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word. And I pray, God, that we would value it today as we go back in time these 2,000 years ago to the foot of the cross and see the death of our beloved Savior. I pray, God, that even as we perhaps experience this sober sadness uh, at, the, at the, just the unjust uh, situation that occurred here at the cross, we remember that you did that for us. So bless us now as we uh, seek to understand more about the fact that he was crucified, dead, and buried. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are going to look at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 47. We probably have, I was thinking, maybe one more sermon in Mark, but we'll probably have two more sermons in Mark. And then uh, the plan right now is, uh, if the Lord wills it, that we will begin uh, going through Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, uh, on the 29th of this month. But uh, I call your attention again to Mark uh, chapter uh, <clears throat> chapter 15, beginning verse 33. We're going to see that he was crucified, he was dead, and he was buried. Your home group helps outline might be of assistance to you as you go through uh, this passage with me. Hear now the word of the Lord. God says, Mark writes, 
And when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So we've got the setting here now. It's, uh, the, the, the sixth hour had come. The darkness fell over the whole land. So uh, it was dark from about noon to about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And this darkness is not a natural occurrence. People will go back and say, oh, yeah, it was an eclipse of the sun or something like this or a, or a terrible sandstorm or, or something like that. This is a God-given darkness. We didn't have an eclipse of the sun. The full moon is involved with the Passover. It's a full moon at this point in time. You can't have an eclipse of the sun during the full moon. And eclipses, for those of us who saw, remember the solar eclipse a few years ago? I mean, it got dark and scary dark for about three minutes, right? It don't last three hours. It does not last three hours. So this was a God-given judgment. It's not dissimilar to one of the plagues that came upon Egypt, right? The darkness came over the land. This is what this is, is a manifestation of the judgment of God. And that darkness is coming not only upon the, the, the Israel, but also the, the word in here is the entire earth. The entire earth saw this darkness. And why? Well, as one commentator says here, the father descended in judgment on Golgotha in thick gloom as the divine executioner to unleash his fury, not against sinners, but against the sin bearer. It's God's judgment coming upon uh, Jesus Christ there on the cross as he bore the sins of many. As, Paul, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. I, I don't know that any of you have ever had someone die for you, died in your stead. Perhaps if you were in combat or something like that or so or a rescue event or something like that, but that's just not norm, normal. Now, for all of you who've had parents, you've had people who've lived for you, right? But to die for someone is a pretty spectacular thing. One of the problems with us, I suppose, is we're so familiar with this, we don't sit and ponder that. We don't sit and ponder that, that every inch of suffering that Jesus went through, he went through for us. Now, you can become overly sentimental, as we tend to be in evangelical American Christianity, about that kind of thing. But these are just sober facts. Jesus was separated from his father at that time, and the judgment of God came upon his perfect son so that the judgment of God will not have to come upon those who follow his perfect son. Jesus laments. He cries out in Aramaic, as Mark gives us with the translation, Eloi, Eloi, Lavak, Samachtani. And some were confused by that because the word Eloi sounds like the word Eli for Elijah. And there was a belief then that Elijah, because he was carried away, Elijah didn't actually die if you read the Old Testament, uh, that he will return to help those who are uh, the righteous who are in difficulty. Uh, so they maybe thought he was crying out for Elijah uh, to come do that. And they were confused by his wording. But then it says that Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his laugh. Uh, last. He, was, uh, he died there as verse 22 uh, tells us in the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now, what's interesting 
again, you know, one of the things we believe here at Christ Reformed Church, as with many churches, is that Genesis to Revelation is one story. There's a scarlet thread of redemption that goes throughout all of Scripture. God didn't chop up his plan for humanity and chop up the Bible. So one of the, the things we look at is we see that is apparent here. The place where Jesus died, many people, many scholars believe, was actually right there next to, if not right at, Mount Moriah. And what is famous about Mount Moriah? Well, if you go all the way back to Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, you see why that's significant. This is speaking of Abraham uh, offering Isaac. And he said, this is God said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing uh, to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, the mountain of the Lord will be provided. So isn't that amazing? If it's true, as many people think, most people would think, that, that that event where God brought in a substitute for Abraham's own son, a lamb to be sacrificed in the stead, is actually happening again. The perfect lamb of God is sacrificed for God's children. Now we see here that he was dead in verses 37 through 41. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, and among whom were Mary, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, and Salome. Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come with him up to Jerusalem. So you have one of the most uh, theologically important statements in all of the New Testament here, that the, tail, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Here's another reason why you want to read the Old Testament. What is this veil of the temple? Well, it's probably the veil that is separating the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, which signifies the presence of God, from the rest of the temple courts, from the rest of the people. And if you go back and you read through the book of Leviticus and you read through the Old Testament scriptures, you remember that that veil was very important. It was very heavy, uh, 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 Persian fabric. It was, uh, it was beautiful, ornate, uh, scarlet and blue and and purple fabric. And the high priest every year would go through on the Day of Atonement, he would go through and he would pour out the, the offering upon the Ark of the Covenant there, the mercy seat of God, and asking uh, that this would atone for the sins of the people. And atonement, of course, is a reconciliation of alien parties. And God would look down and see that uh, the, 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 the sin had been paid for through the blood of the sacrifice victim, and he would accept that, that offering. So that system went on for 1,500 years. The high priest would go through that veil, whether it was in the tabernacle or in the actual the temple proper, uh, as in this situation in Jerusalem. They would kind of go behind with fear and trembling behind that veil, offer the sacrifice, and get out of there because it was terrifying. It was terrifying. It's the very presence of God. So what is significant about the fact that that veil no longer exists? Well, it can mean only this that you have access to God through the death of Jesus Christ. We no longer, we did not, I don't know if you remember, we did not offer a sheep 
as a sacrifice this morning. And we never will. And while we offer, we, when we have communion, we actually are having a supper with the Lord, a celebration. It is not another sacrifice. The once-for-all sacrifice tore the temp, temple veil. And how was it torn? From top to bottom. God himself ripped that veil. From that moment on, Jesus Christ fulfilled every New Testament type and shadow of the sacrificial system. And that system became obsolete from the that moment that Jesus Christ breathed his last. And praise God for that, because the perfect sacrifice was accepted. So there's no longer a sacrifice. As those of you who go to the Thursday morning Bible studies will learn, that is the emphasis of Hebrews. It's done. When he said it's finished, it's more than just his life. That whole system, all those types and shadows, everything that was pointed to, Jesus Christ has fulfilled. And now we have access to God himself the lamb of god made sure that the barrier to god had been permanently removed the old testament system was done away with now what's the problem the problem with religion is we're always trying to sew back the veil and we have this kind of uh even within us this sort of system of legalism or this system of ceremony or whatever it might be that keeps trying to to kind of put that back we don't mean to it's not like we say we want a barrier between us and god but we're we're just uncomfortable with grace we just have a hard time getting our minds and our hearts around the fact of grace and it seems like we're trying to kind of put that veil up we kind of invent some sort of system of law or whatever in order for us to not to, to be uncomfortable with grace folks embrace grace If God says you have access to him through Jesus Christ, you have access to him through Jesus Christ. And he could only say that if your sins really were atoned for, that the two alienated parties are brought together through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I just don't think we enjoy being Christians enough. I just don't think we ponder that. We have these standards for ourselves. We have these standards perhaps that our parents put upon us or whatever it might be. I I don't throw stones at parents because I was a bad one in a lot of ways. I just don't think we enjoy the fact that that veil is gone. To the point, scriptures even tell us we can call, we don't do this because we don't want to come off irreverent, but you can call God the Father, Papa, Daddy. Daddy. And when you see him face to face, you're going to know that's him. Did you just, just take moments to ponder that? What a difference would it make with your life if you really, if you... If you realize, I don't have to measure up because Jesus did. How comforting would that be? How much joy would you have in your life? How much more grace would you bestow towards others instead of judging them all the time for not meeting this standard that you yourself don't meet? Well, it had an effect on a a Gentile. It said here the centurion who was standing right in front of him of course, the Romans customarily had four people guarding the cross, making sure that no one tried to rescue them, that kind of thing. And a centurion is evidently over that particular uh, guard there. And it says this, he saw the way he breathed his last, and he said this statement, truly this man was the son of God. Now, is this not ironic? The high priests, as we saw two weeks ago, were wagging their heads and making fun of Jesus and mocking him in all of his misery. And the rabbis and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin condemned him. And here there's, here's a Gentile 
conqueror that says, that's the Son of God. That's the Son of God. Now, this is a significant moment in redemption history. Most of us are of Gentile blood. I've done a DNA test. I have absolutely no Gentile blood. I mean, I know I'm all Gentile. I have no Jewish blood. I actually have 1% Italian that never comes out when I go to the beach. All that Norwegian stuff comes out when I'm at the beach. We just don't have Jewish. We are Gentile. We are this Roman centurion. We weren't given the law. Our folks didn't go through the, the trials in uh, Egypt and the Red Sea wonder. They didn't, they didn't have the prophets. They didn't have the customs. They didn't have the ceremony. Uh, your ancestors were doing human sacrifices in giant wicker men at this time and worshiping before oak trees and sacred groves in the German woods. And yet, who are the ones that come to faith first? It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Who were the first people that were invited to see Jesus when he was born? Magi, Gentiles from Persia. You got a sandwich here. From the beginning of his life to the end of his life, it's the Gentiles that are giving testimony. It's fulfillment of the parable of the vineyard. God's going to take the vineyard away from those who had rented it, and he's going to give it to others here. This outsider, this Roman officer, this, uh, this people that some people would just assume would die because he's part of the conquering forces of Rome that are subjugating the Jewish people right there. He is the one who expresses faith in Jesus Christ. And then I love this uh, talking about the faithful female followers of Christ here, and it mentions Mary Magdalene by, uh, by name. Interesting background on Mary. According to Luke chapter 8, Jesus cast seven demons out of here out of her tradition says that she was a prostitute that's not actually stated in scripture she was a single woman uh, we know that because she is known by her town of uh, origin magdal right there near the sea of galilee uh, so we know that she is from magdalene uh, she wasn't known as being associated with her husband so i mean it, it, this is a, a slam dunk example for the value of single ministry single women's ministry Jesus never treated singles like there was something wrong with them. <laughs> he adored them. She had a significant ministry with Jesus. And she is there. All the men, by the way, they're gone, right? Perhaps with exception of John, according to his account. They're hiding. They're, they're gone. It's the women who were, what we like to call here, the pink bulldozers of the ministry. The, people, the, the power behind so much of what we do here in our church as well. And then you have Mary, the mother of James, and Les, uh, and Joseph. This is a little bit more difficult. Uh, This Mary may be Mary, the mother of Jesus, because Mark has already told us that Jesus had brothers named James and Joseph, but we don't know why he wouldn't say the Lord's mother. Uh, So that's a little, we're not quite sure about that. And then uh, Salome, um, Matthew identifies the third woman as the mother of Zebedee. So this may, Salome may be the name of the mother of James and John. Now we see he was buried here in verse 42 through 47. And, and, and I want you to, as we look at this passage, I want you to think, because there's this theory out there that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He just fainted. He just swooned or he never, or somebody else died or whatever, you know, these, these folks know death. They're like experts at killing people and ex- executing people and burying people, all right? So notice the detail that Mark goes through, even though Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, in terms of pr- proving the fact that he actually died. 
And when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether or not he was already dead. And ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb, which he had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where they laid him. So evening had come here. Jesus died about 3 p.m., and then the Sabbath began at sundown. So there was a, they were really rushing to take care of this situation because the Jews didn't want the bodies to still be up on the cross and to somehow desecrate uh, the Sabbath. So uh, Joseph goes in and he makes this appeal. Uh, uh, Joseph, we don't know the exact location of Arimathea. Uh, Mark says, uh, or Luke says it was a city of the Jews, so it must have been in Judea. Some people think it might have been the birthplace of, of Samuel, but he was a prominent member of the council. What's the council? The council is the Sanhedrin. Wait a minute, didn't the Sanhedrin just condemn Jesus and hand him over the Pilate, yet Joseph wasn't there, evidently, okay? Neither was Nicodemus. We also know Nicodemus was present, according to, uh, to uh, uh, John chapter 19. So, so, so this is not all of the Sanhedrin were corrupt. There were genuine, godly people, people of character, people of integrity that were serving on the, the Sanhedrin. You know, so be careful when you're criticizing all the politicians. There are really some good ones that are really dedicated out there. Um, not maybe as many as we would like, right? There's not as many as Joseph's on the Sanhedrin. But he was he came and he, and, and he goes and he and he asks uh, for uh, Jesus's body. But but I love what Mark says here. He says he himself is waiting for the kingdom of God. That's the sign of a believer. Do you look forward to the return of Jesus Christ? I know you have some loved ones that you would like to see come to know the Lord first, and but do you look forward to the, the return of Jesus Christ? See, a non-believer doesn't do that. A, a non-believer would be in terror of the return of Jesus Christ. He can no longer hide his guilt and his shame, and, 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 be, and, and he, he can't be distracted by the things of this world, so he doesn't have to focus on eternal things. When you see Jesus coming in the clou- clouds, it's over with. The believer looks forward to that. They long for them. They, they, they want to see him. They want to have all those promises fulfilled. That's the way Joseph would. He, he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke 23 says this, Behold, a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he did not consent to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. When you think about that idea that he's waiting for the kingdom of God, again, we kind of go back to uh, Jesus' birth. Remember old Simeon? That's one of the best Christmas stories there is. I mean, it happened after Christmas, but when uh, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to be dedicated there in the temple, and they run it, it even seems a little awkward at first, they run into this old man who knows who they are all of a sudden. Because the Holy Spirit has told him that he wouldn't die until he sees the Lord's anointed, until he sees the Messiah. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he saw the Lord's Christ. 
And he came in the spirit in the temple. And when the parents brought the child in to carry him, carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him into his arms and blessed God. I get emotional every time I think about that wonderful old cracked old man who's been just faithfully enduring this corrupt system and all the things that were going on in Israel at the time. And God had just chosen him to be one that he said, my Messiah is coming. And then he saw him. He realized that was the Messiah. Joseph of Arimathea is that same kind of character, that same kind of man on the other end of Christ's life. God, even in Jesus' death, God is taking care to preserve the testimony. And there are still some who believe. But people, if you really believe this, people think you're, you're crazy. Right. To, the, to the Greek, uh, your foolishness. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block. You, you're just crazy to believe. That's why there's so much effort expended to prove that Jesus didn't actually die like the, the Gospels say that he did. Well, Joseph, be like Joseph, don't be like them. It says he gathered up courage. It's kind of a wonderful combination of the spirit working, but also he's having to, uh, to, to walk in obedience. And he went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And you're thinking, well, that's not that big deal. What, what's, well, first of all, he's being associated with a man who was just crucified to death, right? Uh, as a brigand. But part of it is, is that, that it was not the custom of the Romans to give over bodies of crucified victims. Remember, what, why do the Romans crucify victims? Well, they love blood, for one thing. I mean, like... On Sunday afternoons, they would go and watch people get killed in the arena. That's kind of what they did for fun. But a lot of it was to be the example. Don't mess with Rome. And if you do, this is what's going to have you. And they would leave the bodies on the cross until they decayed or until animals ate them. Or in a case of a situation like this, the normal, if Joseph had not done this, they would have taken his body and thrown him into the valley of Gehenna and let him just rot there, the garbage heap of... Uh, of uh, Jerusalem, what Jesus uses uh, as, a, as a symbolic of the way hell is. They would have just taken his body and dumped it. Well, burial, as it is important for us, burial was very important for the Jews. So Joseph thought, I, we can't let this happen. This travesty has already occurred. This injustice has been terrible. He's got to have at least a decent burial. This is what the women were thinking as well, too. We couldn't stop his death, but we can at least give him a decent burial, a decent funeral. So he goes, he takes up courage, he uh, there wasn't enough time to really do anything other than take this linen wrapping here. But Pilate's surprised. Pilate's like, what do you mean? Get, he's already dead. He was confused by this. So he goes to the centurion. The centurion says, yep, he's dead already. So uh, these people, again, they know death. They took him down. They wrapped him down. And it says to take him into a tomb that's hewn out of a rock. Matthew tells us that the tomb was actually Joseph's tomb. This is another big deal. There was a, a, a specified family burial plot, and they had already prepared it. And what they would do is they would, you would walk into this tomb, and there would be shelves on the side, and they would lay the body there. And then they'd come back quite some time later. Once the body is decomposed, they would collect the bones and bury them in an ostuary, and they would reuse these family tombs, Okay. And uh, Scripture tells us this tomb, no, no one had ever been laid in. This was a brand new tomb. This was an investment. This was going to be where Joseph himself was going to be buried. And he gave that up in order to give Jesus a proper burial. His, his love for the Lord and his, his anger at the unrighteousness was such that he sacrificed uh, for the sake of giving Jesus a good funeral here. And then, of course, there's a big stone that's rolled in the tomb, so Jesus wasn't going to be able to get out by himself. And, of course, this is also fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Uh, 
His grave was assigned with a wicked man, yet with a rich man in his death. Now, you know, that's almost like Isaiah was sitting there listening to the conversation. Okay, he's going to be buried in Joseph's tomb. Joseph's a rich man, so he's going to be with a rich man in his death. That ought to give you confidence in, in Holy Scripture. Now, there's a, a, an account that happens here uh, that, that Mark doesn't mention, but Matthew does, that kind of has to do with the, the securing of the tomb, which would be helpful for, to build your confidence that this, these things actually uh, happen. Let me read to you from Mark ch- chapter 27. Now, on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive that the deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Now they get it. <laughs> Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. So they went to great efforts to make sure that no one could say falsely that he rose from the dead. That's just important for us to understand. And then, of course, then you have a, a reference again to the ladies who were taking special note. They couldn't do everything they wanted to do in order to prepare the body with spice and stuff, so they remembered when he, uh, where, uh, where he was buried so they could go back later, which we'll pick up on next week, right? So you've got three witnesses here. You've got Joseph, Pilate, and the centurion all said he was dead. The, the other gospel accounts tell us that he was speared in the side as well to make sure that he was dead. So Jesus was was crucified, dead, and buried. The early church father, Melito of Sardis, expressed the reality of what happened on the cross with these words. He that hung up the earth in space was himself hanged up. He that fixed the heavens was fixed with nails. He that bore up the earth was borne up on a tree. The Lord of all was subjected to ignominy in a naked body God put to death. In order that he may not be seen, the luminaries turned away and the day became darkened because they slew God who hung naked on a tree. This is he who made the heaven and the earth and in the beginning together with the Father fashioned man who was announced by the means of the law and the prophets who put on a bodily form in the virgin who was hanged upon a tree. All of those truths figure into what it means to be a Christian. So we have a sober sadness when we see this account of the death of Jesus Christ. But isn't it wonderful? Just like you go to a Christian funeral, that's really in so many ways just the beginning of the story. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered to you as first of all importance what I received also, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. The next time we pick up this account, we will read that on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And we have every reason to have the hope and the joy that God expects us to have because of that truth. Father, we thank you for the accounts, the difficult accounts of the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, and we are ashamed that it was so necessary. Because if there's something that we are familiar with, it's our sin and the sin of this fallen world. We thank you, God, that you did not leave us without a redemptive plan. That the alien parties came together and the death of Jesus Christ and that death brought an end to all those types and shadows and forms 
And now we live in an age, a gospel age, where we can look back on the truth of something that happened that's made all the difference in the world. Let us just love you all the more as a result. In Christ's name.